Good morning. My name is Ben Jones. Uh, I'm about to be an elder here at Lower Town uh, next week, hopefully, Lord willing, vote passing. Um, <laughs> uh, my wife, Emily, and I have been attending Lower Town since we started uh, for about six and a half years now. Um, and I'm excited to preach today uh, as we continue our series in Romans. Um, so we're in this section now, uh, just about to finish. Next week, we'll end chapter eight. Uh, we've been in this section four through eight that we're kind of titling, How Do We Then Live? Um, I want to, as Shrek says, kind of peel the onion a little bit and be real with you uh, about my experience preparing for this sermon. Uh, weeks ago, a month ago, uh, I think Brian was preaching in chapter seven, and something kind of moved in me seeing this passage ahead of us, um, my own life experiences, and I felt something like a fire in my belly to preach to you guys. Now, this is the second sermon I've given in front of you, and unfortunately, it's the second time that I've kind of given this caveat to evoke pity, uh, that kind of thing. I'll try not to do that next time, but um, <laughs> I, I want to be real that as soon as I said to Brian, hey, I'm kind of thinking about this. Do you think I could take this spot? Something happened inside of me that I'm, I'm sure we're all familiar with, like imposter syndrome, right? Just this sensation of who am I? Why, why am I asking for this spot? Am I seeking attention? Am I trying to, uh, this is going to be a heavy topic today. Am I trying to prove my emotional intelligence or something like that? I wouldn't say I'm over that. Uh, <laughs> I still have these doubts in me, but uh, what I want to do today is bring you to the hope that we have in Christ and at the same time, uh, encourage us to walk forward as we are guided by his light. Uh, so really, I do just want to say, be praying for Paul, Brian, and I. You know, it's not easy doing this necessarily. I think they're a little more comfortable with it, but you know. All right. So today, again, we're in uh, chapter eight of Romans going through verses 18 through 30. If you still have this book, I encourage you to pull that out. If you don't and you want this uh, printout of Romans, uh, it's got pages for notes next to the text. Just talk to Brian. Uh, we'll be reading from the ESV. All right. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his God, 
in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. All right, clear as mud, right? Very dense, uh, a very dense passage. Um, I'm going to be making some observations here, almost treating this like a bit of a Bible study. Uh, as we go through, you'll be able to tell I'm being a little choosy. There's certainly a lot to talk about in this passage, um, but I'm kind of choosing some themes here. Uh, but first, I just want to kind of call it like it is. This is very dense. Uh, the word for is used at the start of half of these verses, maybe depending on the translation. It's used about nine times as something of like this logical transition. And so if if your mind went to static as I was reading, I don't blame you. It's very dense. Um, uh, and then ten, 10 times to kind of show purpose or, you know, he's making these statements about things of God. Uh, he, Paul, is contrasting uh, the sufferings now with this glory that is to be revealed. Uh, and not just kind of making these opposites, but really that the glory coming is outweighing the sufferings that we have now. But what is he talking about? He's talking specifically about persecution. In Paul's time, there was state-ordered persecution in Rome uh, for Christians. Um, you know, we really don't need to pull any punches there. Uh, and it wasn't just something that was abstract for Paul, even though truly for us, it's abstract. Uh, for him, it was his friends, his, his church family who were being killed. And then with these, this glory that is to be revealed, um, I have all these superlative kind of words restoration, wholeness, God with us, peace, light, love, a lot of things we sing about in Christmas time. Uh, there's this biblical theme, shalom. It's a Hebrew word for peace. And it's even beyond peace. It includes all this kind of stuff, the, the new earth, the restoration that God is bringing eventually when Jesus returns. So he's contrasting these things. As we keep going, uh, Paul is giving voice to creation. Uh, that somehow the creation itself is being subjected, it waits, uh, it will be free, and it has been groaning. And importantly, I just want to call out that creation is waiting. It's waiting on us somehow. And then in verse 23, uh, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly. Uh, this is kind of an interesting verse. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Uh, the other week, Brian had preached about how we do have now the indwelling spirit and that spirit is unified to us. It's how we fight sin through the spirit's empowerment. But here, you know, this, that was just eight verses ago, right? And Paul didn't write in chapters and verses. He wrote this as one letter. And in one letter, Paul says both that we wait for our adoption and we are adopted. And that is the Christian walk. That's going to be kind of a theme today that we have this already, not yet, this groaning, this tension as we wait for something ahead of us while we act as if, well, it is true now, right? So Paul connects uh, creation's groans with our groans. And not only that, uh, the spirit groaning with us. Got a little help myself. And then in verse 26, um, we see the spirit himself groaning. The Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. That could be something to unpack for hours. We're not going to do that today. I just kind of want to present that mysterious aspect of this member of the Trinity, the Spirit, uh, there to you today. Um, 
in previous weeks, like I was saying, uh, Brian had shown us these verses, uh, kind of the beginning of chapter eight through where we are today. Verse 11 here, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The spirit is united to us and by him, again, we fight sin. And in verse 15, you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So again, the spirit is connected to our own spirit. The mechanics of that, who knows? Uh, but this is just a fact coming from this same author, this same passage. And the spirit confirms our place in God's house. So then back to today, again, verse 26. Likewise, the spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And with this, we have kind of everyone groaning, um, but we'll continue on observing. Then we get this nice verse, Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good. It would make a great coffee mug verse, right? No, wrong, ooh, got a picture now of that mug broken. <laughs> all right, because that's not the verse. The verse says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Uh, I think I'm gonna elaborate on this more, but I just wanna say now at least uh, that God doesn't give us pain and suffering, okay? It's not like God is uh, some weird chess master or masochist that is always coaching us with pain. Uh, that is a result of sin and corruption, okay? That is not from God. But what God does do is he redeems. He redeems and uses that pain for our good. The story of Joseph in the Bible, that's how that kind of puts a cap on it that what you intended for evil, God used for good, he says to his brothers. Uh, but really the chief example for this is Jesus himself, a king, our king, who died on a cross for our sake, right? That God uses the pain for good. And then uh, since we're still in observation land, uh, you know, the end of this passage talks, uses the word predestination several times in just two verses. Um, so if you're gonna ask me, am I gonna explain it? I'm gonna tell you, no. But I will just say that here at Hope, we have a pretty simple or simplistic stance on predestination that God chooses us, yes. We also choose God. That invitation is clear in scripture. It's weird to say, but it's what it says. Um, you know, God's, God's ways are higher than our ways. And as we move to chapters nine through 11, that's gonna be a huge theme. So we're not gonna really unpack that today. So instead, I really wanna spelunk the cave of groaning. So here are some true facts about groaning. First, that God, his people, us, those who believe in Jesus, and creation all groan. We are all groaning. In the passage, there's kind of this hierarchy, so to speak. Um, you know, not, maybe it's not the most important point, but just to situate our understanding correctly. Uh, creation is waiting on us for our adoption. And that has been true since the fall, since Genesis 3. Everything was broken then. And it's been waiting ever since then for us to be joined to God. And the spirit, God, intercedes for us through our prayers, through our groanings. He groans for us with groanings too deep for words. But we're all groaning together. And therefore, if I may make the claim, if God is groaning himself, groaning itself must not be bad. It's nothing that we need to hide from. And again, it is 
a product of sin and corruption. It's a product of the fall. It's not itself a bad thing, but it's a response to the bad things. I don't think I necessarily need to do this, but here's some cheeky proof texts for this concept of groaning. Um, Again, you can go back to Genesis 3, but you can see it in the prophets many times in Psalms, this imagery being used for creation itself, crying out to God, longing for him, praising him, things like that. In Romans 7, just a few weeks ago, a month ago, uh, we were seeing how Paul gives voice to this, this groan we have in ourselves against sin. Uh, He says, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? Thanks be to God uh, for victory through Jesus. Um, we, we all know the groan against our own sin very well, but it's not just us. It's, it's me, it's others, me and others, it's me and God, even me and creation being impacted by the fall and ever since the fall. Um, really everything is just out of joint. And, uh, you know, with God, you can see it everywhere. Um, in the, when he gives that curse as a response to the fall, Uh, through the prophets, through Psalms, uh, all over scripture. Thankfully, uh, as chapter eight starts and ends, uh, or I'm sorry, this passage starts and ends, uh, this groaning is going away eventually. It'll be this return to shalom, return to God's good designs for us, for the world. Uh, And that is our hope. That is the response to groaning. But let's keep unpacking this. And I'm going to give you what I feel like is maybe a working definition of groaning. Groaning is the feeling, is feeling the tension between the way things ought to be and the way things are now. I think it's pretty simple. I think this is uh, understandable. Um, But this has all been pretty heady, you know, kind of the concept of groaning. And like I say here, groaning is a feeling, uh, which might seem a little uncomfortable um, because feelings are, are squishy. They're kind of nebulous. They, they shift, it kind of depends person to person. Um, but uh, I want to look at now some scenes of groaning in scripture. Uh, you can jump around and see it everywhere. Uh, the story of the people of God starting in Exodus, uh, it says that God hears the groaning of his people and therefore sends Moses to bring them out of Egypt. The story of Job is full of groaning. Uh, He makes all these appeals to God that I've been a righteous person. Why has this come? Uh, Who are you? God, you know, let's have a conversation about why this is happening. He's groaning. He's crying out to God. There are weeping prophets. That's kind of the name for Jeremiah. Uh, You see groaning in the Psalms, in Ecclesiastes, Lamentations, groaning about the state of the world uh, in recognition of God's holiness. But we're going to look here specifically at this scene from Mark 9. And it's the story of a son being healed of a demon. And th- this is the story that was rattling around in my heart uh, a month ago. It has been for a long time. Uh, there's a song out there by uh, a guy named uh, Josh White, I believe, that kind of uses the end of this passage in his chorus. And it's, it's very evocative for me. Um, and I'm hoping to kind of bring you alongside uh, as we read this. So this is at Uh, the height of Jesus's ministry. There are crowds following him. Um, And just before I kind of trimmed it, you know, for time, uh, there are disciples arguing with scribes. They're arguing about uh, trying to heal people or, you know, things like that. This is also, as Mark has it laid it out, uh, 
it's post-transfiguration where Jesus brings Peter, James, and John with him. And then they come down off the mountain and sees the rest of his disciples bickering with these scribes. All right. So Mark chapter nine in the ESV. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, saw Jesus, immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And the father said, from childhood. And if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. So we see here uh, this shadow of doubt come across the father, right? This second reproof from Jesus. He says, all things are possible just in the previous verse. And then he says here, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. But I want to make sure, well, I, I just want to call us to, to really put ourselves in this story. Be this father. Jesus does heal the, heal the boy and he lifts him from the ground. In other accounts, this scene closes with Jesus delivering the son into the father's arms. This takes place uh, again, just as Jesus's ministry is reaching its most popular state. Crowds are following and swarming and trying to intercept Jesus. You know, you can imagine if Taylor Swift was just like wandering around the state fair and what kind of, you know, chaos that would, that would bring. Uh, you may know the story of the woman with the bleeding condition, uh, kind of a similar similar story where she fights through the crowd to just reach out and touch her, touch Jesus's garment. Um, similarly, we find this desperate father reaching for this healer. He has clearly heard of Jesus, maybe even seen a miracle before, uh, and is so desperate for his son to be healed. He managed to get the attention of Jesus's disciples, but they could not prevail in healing his son. Maybe it was his only child or maybe his only son we can at least know that this issue has been around for many years and that this has surely weighed on the father heavily for years and years as the boy is no longer a child. He says, from childhood. He was greatly motivated to find healing for his son. Think as if this burden were on your shoulders and imagine if these deputies of Jesus came with a promise of healing and then imagine that sinking feeling that as they prayed, nothing changed. What if the boy was hit with an episode as they prayed too? Despite that sinking feeling and what I have to imagine as a mix of bitterness and hope, oil and water, hope toward God, the father seeks out Jesus for the sake of his son. What's more, he is likely to elbow through the crowd, perhaps dragging his son with him, maybe leaving him with someone. Can you see how, while obviously mistaken, he makes this statement and I can imagine him reaching, grabbing Jesus's arm or tunic and bowing. If you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. 
I can also imagine that Jesus is exasperated, even though the boy is immediately present there convulsing. And, and Jesus gives him a rebuke. Maybe Jesus is stern. Maybe Jesus says it with kind of annoying smile uh, or maybe with gentleness. But the, but the father feels it, can feel the, the sting. Not, not malicious, of course, right? And, and drink in these words. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Do you hear that pain? Are you there with him at all? That is groaning fighting for belief against our unbelief. Again, groaning is the feeling, is feeling the tension between the way things ought to be and the way things are right now. So I want to share with you a story from my own life. And this is kind of why I had some trepidation, just because again, I don't, you know, it's hard. I doubt myself. Satan attacks us, we call him the accuser. And I feel accused of, of wanting the attention to, to show off but I think what I want to do, what I want to do is to show you that groaning has a place in our story as Christians, that God himself groans and he groans with us. My father died two and a half years ago in 2021. Uh, he was struck by a car. He was walking on a sidewalk and hit by a car as a result of a different car hitting that one. It was kind of just a freak accident. There was one car coming down a hill 15 miles faster than it should have been. And another took a very poorly timed left turn, struck that car and it spun and killed my father instantly. As I, I wanna show you some scenes or describe some scenes to you kind of from the fallout of that. I don't think, you know, I'm not hanging my hat on this or anything. I don't think the experience of that, that day is necessarily the groaning. That's kind of grief and trauma. Groaning to me is this long-term thing. Nevertheless, uh, when, that, when that happened, it was noon on a bright March day. I was at work like every one of my family was. I missed maybe three calls from my twin brother uh, who never calls. <laughs> so when I finally got to a point where I looked at my phone and saw that uh, and one, two words in a text pick up, I knew something was wrong. So I call back and he said, dad's been in an accident. You need to come to the hospital. Clarify which hospital. At the time I was working in Somerset, Wisconsin and the hospital, particular hospital was in Brooklyn Park. So I needed to drive 45 minutes. Uh, as I was trying to reflect on this with Emily, I'm not sure what happened <laughs> immediately. I think I called her, um, but I started driving. I remember calling my sister, making sure that he, she had heard. She said, just drive carefully, take your time. I called Brian and all I could say was, can you please pray for me? Um, but 45 minutes uh, to wonder about what had happened. Is my dad paraplegic? Did he die? Uh, is he okay and just banged up? Um, I don't know. And I, this, this was in me. I don't know if the words were, but I believe, God, you are good. I know you are good in this. I know you are good. Help me. So that happened. It was awful. Uh, as the months went on, well, as the weeks went on, um, you know, the family is talking. Uh, eventually, uh, all of us siblings, there are five of us, um, myself included. I have a sister that lives out west in Washington. The rest of us live in the Twin Cities. Uh, it was 2021, so we were hopping on Zoom uh, for some regular calls for just a little bit. 
And on one of these calls, uh, I had kind of asked the question, um, hey, can we get some consensus on what we would hope for, my, for our mom uh, in these next few months? Like, what, what do we just want for her um, just as she's struggling? Like, are we, are we all going to encourage her to go to counseling? Or uh, how are we going to help her with the house or not? You know, th- things like that. Uh, and I remember one of my siblings just said, why? Why bother with consensus? And I'm going to be flying through these so that, I mean, I don't know if that lands to you, um, but it really was painful for me. And kind of, I think this groaning of family, can we rally and clarify? Can we agree on something? And it says a lot about my family that I won't unpack. Uh, one of them saying, why? Why bother? In another Zoom call, we were kind of processing the, you know, to be honest, the good and bad of my dad and our, all of our individual relationships with him. And one of my siblings just consistently downplaying the trauma we had, downplaying, you know, just as siblings, we were trying to process this together, some for the first time, not knowing what the others had experienced. So in that, in that meeting for the first time, uh, one of my siblings trying to downplay it, defend it. At some point, I got my hands on the police report about my father's death, and I got halfway through <laughs> um, just reading that. And the indignity of death, that is groaning the indignity of it. It's not what we're made for. We're not made to die, but it's a result of the corruption. The celebration of life, uh, there, was, there was a lot of good and there was a lot of very awkward testimony. And, you know, I, I don't even want to elaborate on it. And it's, it's a little funny. <laughs> and it's just, I think it highlights this groaning that even in death, we like can't talk about it, right? We can't celebrate life correctly. There are just these awkward stories kind of told about my dad. Someone was just rambling about the way things used to be. Like, uh. <laughs> um, there, were, there were legal proceedings as a result of this accident. Uh, I felt a groaning against the lack of criminal charges because of two words, gross negligence. It was ruled that the, this incident was not gross negligence or use of a, of a vehicle. And then in the, what you'd call the civil case between you know, really our insurance and their insurance. Um, that was just a painful process. It was drawn out. It was about money and what money replaces my dad, right? Um, it was just painful. After that, <laughs> several months, we found out that there was more evidence that was never brought to light. That kind of clarified some things. That was painful. And of course, uh, then, you know, for these two drivers involved, I'd even say still wrestling with my response to them. You know, do I forgive them? I don't know. Depends on the day, just truthfully. I don't think that's right, but it's, you know, it's what I feel. And it's that tension of knowing that Jesus calls us to forgive, but I don't want to forgive, right? All right. So it's just to say that God can take our groans and is with us, all right? I still groan with this time and time again. Um, I hope that's clear. My mom will never really heal from this. I've heard her describe it now as living as an amputee. That part of her is just gone. I would say I have a scar and I don't feel it as deeply as my mom, of course. Um, But we know that God is with us in it. A a big comfort in this time was, there's a a phrase in the Psalms and I can't remember which one, that God bottles our tears, uh, that he, he sees us. Okay. So let's kind of come up for some here. Again, to sort of summarize, groaning is shared between the people of God, God himself, and creation itself. 
the people of God have a future glory. It's confirmed with our union with his spirit now, the spirit. Several times in Paul's writings, he uses this word guarantee, that the spirit is a guarantee of this coming glory, a guarantee of our faith. But while we are here now, we groan for that future glory to happen now. Maranatha, come quickly. And so I kind of want to continue to, you know, come back maybe a little away from the emotion and just keep talking about groaning as we sort of conclude here. I think in the good old US of A, we have a lot of bad responses to groaning. And this is obviously not exhaustive. I'm kind of being, being short, being pity. I think we can be tempted to choose apathy, just not care, just unplug from whatever it is that's making us groan. Obviously, sometimes that's easier than others. We can hide from it, and this can look a lot of different ways. You know, we can, we can choose uh, substances to sort of numb our mind to it. We can choose hobbies to do the same thing, to unplug. Um, we can, uh, again, in the US of A, I think it's easy for us to avoid people. We can buy things, go on vacations, start a family of our own to avoid groaning. We can drink, we can work, develop hobbies, find life hacks, all as a way to get around groaning. We're very uncomfortable with this pain. And I would hope that as the people of God, we can accept that just as sin is inevitable, corruption is inevitable, and therefore groaning is inevitable. We've tasted the goodness of God, and therefore we, we can pull against this groaning, but not without hope, right? We do have hope. And therefore, we don't need to hide from groaning. Obviously, God himself gives us a better alternative. His alternative is Jesus, his son, who we celebrate in this time. Uh, and I would hope always. Uh, Jesus is God's offer of salvation, redemption, our one way out of groaning. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And as we turn to Jesus, he can, again, not in an exhaustive list, but just some things that came to mind, Jesus gives us the chance to find hope. He is our uh, high priest who intercedes for us. We find hope through Jesus. We can choose obedience now, the groaning that we have in, our, in and of ourselves. He gives us the path out of sin, a model, uh, strength. And we can grow empathy in us. You know, one big thing that has changed in me is just way more patience, way more empathy for people who have their own pain, whether, you know, whether it's related to death or not. And then from those things, uh, nice, uh, from those things, these do produce fruit. And again, it's not, you know, it's not one for one. I'm just kind of talking here. Um, imagine that, uh, that these things will produce in us wisdom, wisdom in how to approach pain, trauma, grief, wisdom in how to show empathy. It will inspire us to pursue, pursue righteousness and not be sources of more groaning in the world, or at least I would hope. And I say that as an antagonist. Um, but what's more is that we can then seek here and now, even while we wait for shalom, I would hope that in our eagerness, in our desire for Jesus to come back and bring that to us, that we would see and pursue opportunities to do that here and now, to pursue righteousness, to restore shalom, do good things, seek God's good designs here, even while he will be making things new. In Isaiah 58, um, there are these two words that uh, are sort of, from God to us, his people. And it says, I will call you repairers of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. And I think that's, that's just very evocative for me. Um, as I've been thinking about this on Facebook, I came across this quote from Tim Keller, posthumous quote, he is dead, but you know, they're kind of keeping his page alive. 
while other worldviews lead us to sit in the midst of life's joys, foreseeing the coming sorrows, Christianity empowers its people to sit in the midst of this world's sorrows. Uh, sorry, I got cut off there. Tasting the coming joy. Jesus is our hope. And this, this is what makes it so unique. It's not our own efforts. It's not uh, holiness that we do. It's Jesus' holiness that gives us hope. And then he says, be salt and light. Bring that out, that people can see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And so I do just kind of want to land on this end from our passage today. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. I encourage you to take time to groan. Let that be part of your faith. Let hope fill you with strength. And be assured that this isn't how God wants things. Again, he will be making all things new. But God pulled groaners out of Egypt to make a new people so that the nations would be drawn in. So in conclusion, God is groaning with you. God is groaning with you. He sees you. God has redeemed your life through Jesus if you bow the knee to him. And he is doing so now, ongoing. I would hope that you can let groaning drive us to Jesus who himself endured groans. And I would pray that Jesus then drives us to obedience and restoring shalom here and now. And even so, let that uphill climb drive our gaze again to Jesus. So again, lastly, do you avoid groaning? Do you ask for help from each other? Do you offer help to each other? Uh, so today, now we're <laughs> going to be uh, practicing communion, uh, sort of in reflection, in meditation on what Jesus has done for us, giving his body for our sake, bleeding on the cross for our sake. This is for believers. We ask that you do believe in Jesus to participate in this. We do not require, though, that you be a member of this church or a member of any church to participate. We're going to have some songs. Uh, the worship team can come up as I pray for our time. Um, take your time, uh, pray. We do two songs. So in that time, though, I invite you to participate in this. So let me pray as the worship team comes up. God, we thank you that you are relational, that you see us. You sent Jesus to die for our sake and you brought him to new life as you regenerate our own hearts. You give us hope. You breathe life into our dry bones. And while it doesn't, solve our groaning here and now, we know that that is coming and we know that you groan with us. So you can hear our groans. We can share that with you, share that with each other. We thank you for that support, God. We thank you for your love for our sake. As we take time here to meditate on that sacrifice for our sake, would you just impress upon us the new life that you do give us? Let us feel that hope in this time. Thank you, Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen.